In one of Paul's writings, he said, A great and effective door of ministry has been opened. And there are many adversaries. Kind of an interesting combination. A great effective door, and yet there are many who oppose me, many adversaries. And any time there is a work of God, there is opposition, you ought to by now learn to expect it. And if you have the philosophy always, we'll just go with the flow, you might never go. Because you might be finding yourself against the enemy's flow, who's seeking to stop the work of God that you might be doing. And so you ought to just go with what God tells you to do and forget the flow. Sometimes you'll go against it. And so a great and effective door was opened, but there are many adversaries. And we see that principle worked out in chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Acts. Oftentimes, the gospel is hindered by people who have closed minds, especially closed religious minds. Or let me rephrase that, closed legalistic minds. They don't want things done any other way than the way they have always done them in their particular church or group. They're opposed to any momentum or change that the Holy Spirit would seek to bring. And oftentimes those people stand in the opening of the door that has been opened and hinder other people from going inside. And again, we see that principle worked out in this chapter. In the 1700s, there was a missionary who at that time was a would-be missionary named William Carey, who eventually went to India, Asia, and did a tremendous work. He told a group of ministers in England his plan that he felt God laid on his heart to go to India and evangelize the lost people of India with the gospel. And as he told them, one of the ministers stood up and said, Young man, sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. William Carey, praise the Lord, didn't listen to that pastor. But he went out anyway and said, Hey, though the world is against me, I've been given that commission to share the gospel with every creature. So he went out. And a great work of evangelism was done in India. God opened doors for him, but yet there was opposition at the same time. It says in verse 1 of chapter 15 that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. A bit of a disclaimer, and if you've been with us in Acts, this is not new news, but the early church was far from being ideal. I bring that up a lot because people are often looking for the perfect assembly. The perfect church. It's just got to be so. And of course, you know the old saying, you'll never find a perfect church. And if you ever do, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore. As soon as you join it, you'll spoil it. Because humans are imperfect. And the church of Jesus Christ is a hospital for sick people. Not a pristine, perfect, ideal setting. And unfortunately, people never get grounded in one particular church because they're always griping and looking for the perfect something that never is out there. The early church wasn't perfect. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira kicked the bucket. They were slain by the Spirit. I mean, they didn't get up again. It wasn't a blessing either. It was like, and they were out and they were buried because they lied. Paul 
And Barnabas, although they were team members in the ministry, didn't get along and had a debate. We see it in this chapter later on. And they had to split company. And here we see an argument that goes on in the church where they have to kind of convene before the church in Jerusalem because the dissension becomes so great. The issue is an intense, heavy, debated issue. As you read this chapter, don't think that the argument here is one of those petty little arguments like what color will we paint the women's bathroom or should we put the organ on this side or that side? No, this is a real intense, important argument. It deals with how a person is saved. It's an interesting question. You will get a variety of answers if you ask people, how are you saved? Many will say, well, you're saved by faith in Christ plus doing this, 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 and this. That's the wrong answer. Well, you're saved by faith in Christ plus becoming a member. Wrong answer. You're saved by being a good person. Wrong answer. This chapter settles the issue of how a person, and in this case, brand new Gentiles, people who didn't have a religious background at all except in paganism, how they are saved. What gives them justification? What grants them entrance into the kingdom of heaven? When it comes to giving a person direction, it's important that you're accurate. If somebody said, uh, how do you get to Santa Fe? You would say, oh, just go out to the freeway and uh, turn left or right. doesn't really matter. All roads lead to Santa Fe, eventually. <laughs> well, you're going to get the person lost. When you give directions, it's important that you're accurate. Pilots, when they get into a plane, don't say, I'll just, uh, I'll go that way. Somewhere out there is Los Angeles. No, they set the degrees in the direction that that plane must follow. And if they're off even a couple degrees, though it might not seem much when they take off, by the time they land, they'll be way off base. Giving eternal directions is extremely important that you're accurate. Say, all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe. You're lying to a person. You're misleading a person. And you will be responsible for giving a person misinformation when you stand before God. That's why James said in his epistle, don't let many of you become teachers because you'll receive stricter judgment. Don't be too ambitious to get out and teach eternal directions unless you're called by God because you'll receive a stricter judgment. Why? Because it's important that you're accurate. When you point a, point a person in the direction, make sure it's the right direction. And so this is an important issue that has to be settled. In verse 1, certain men, let's just read ahead, came down from Judea, the area of Jerusalem, and taught. These are teachers now. But this is what they taught. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you want to be saved, you have to go through the ritual of circumcision. You have to keep the laws of Moses to enter into the kingdom. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, I like the way that's worded. In other words, they had a big argument about it. And dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What was he referring to? He was referring to the time when he was by Joppa, and he saw a vision, a sheet come down out of heaven with all sorts of unkosher meats. And God said, Peter, get up, kill him and eat him. Peter said, no way. And once he was convinced that he was speaking of Gentiles, he went to a guy by the name of Cornelius, went to his home, shared the gospel with him. And Cornelius gave his life to Jesus Christ. So this is what he's referring to, that incident at Cornelius's house. And so in verse 8, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I like the way that's phrased. He turns it around. He doesn't say, hey, they're saved like we are. He says, we're saved like they are. And all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all of the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all of these things. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. Many of Gentiles around the area of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, the places we've been reading about the last few weeks, many of those people were coming to know the Lord. They were making commitments to Christ. Well, at first, a few Gentiles in the church was no big deal to the Jews in Jerusalem. But now that there's a lot of them, they're scratching their heads thinking, you know what, we might become the minority here. Jewish Christians might become something that is a minority, and we might have more Gentiles than Jews pretty soon. Well, we were exactly right. That's what happened. Very few of us tonight in this room have a Jewish background. Most of us have a Gentile background. But the question that they had was, how can a Gentile receive a Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish in some regard, without respecting our law, which God handed down through Moses to us? 
Can we just throw that away now? Shouldn't we impose some kind of a religious standard upon them? We can't just let them come in the way they are. They're, they're unclean. They're unkosher. We gotta get these guys cleaned up. Make them look like Christians. Act like Christians. Like us. Keeping all the laws. The, our way of doing things. And so this dispute came out and began in verse one. It was a period of transition. The Jews respected their law. Keep in mind, when this chapter took place, the book of Romans hadn't been written, the book of Galatians hadn't been written, the book of Hebrews hadn't been written. So they didn't have the benefit of all of the teaching of grace. They did not understand grace. They only understood law. Which is funny that many Christians today only understand and only want law. They don't want grace. It's too open. It's too free. They misunderstand God's grace. They'll say things like, you ought to get down on people wearing skimpy things to church. Uh, make an issue out of it. Um, tell them not to do it. Uh, they, they, they're not Christians, those people who come like that. Impose a standard of dress. I won't do that. I'll let the Lord convict their heart, and I'll explain why as we go through this. But there are so many things. We're not called to set up a rule and regulation. Okay, you want to be a Christian, you have to sign this document that says you won't go to movies, you won't smoke cigarettes, you won't drink alcohol, you won't go to dances, you won't do this, you won't do that. Hey, let's impose a system. They have to come through the law in order to really be a Christian. Like, I'm really a Christian. Now, the dispute if you were to narrow it down, is a comparison. And I want to compare several things tonight. The difference between a religious system and Christianity. And keep something in mind. Christianity is not a religion. There's only one religion that God ever gave to man. That's Judaism. He set up a system. He set up rules. He set up laws, regulations, the Sabbath, sacrifices, Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle. Do this on a certain day. Don't do that on a certain day. If you work on the Sabbath, you'll be killed. An intricate religious system. A means by which sinful man could have his sins atoned for and approach God. Jesus came and said, I have come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. I'm doing away with religion. Well, that made the Pharisees pretty angry. Because they loved their religious system. And they were raised to love it. And they should love it. But there comes a time when you take and you have new wine and you can't pour it in the old wineskin. You've got to pour new wine in the new wineskin. And that's when people get a little upset. But Christianity is, as you have been told and you say, a relationship with the living God. Where that big gap that existed between sinful man and holy God has been bridged. And you can come to God and you're his child, and he's your father. And you can come and have an intimate relationship with him. And you can come boldly before his throne. You don't have to talk to a high priest and bring a lamb to the altar before you can talk to God. You can say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Right now, I ask you to forgive me. I want to I wanna hang out with you. I want a relationship with you. I want fellowship with you. And God will say, all right. So the Bible says, let us therefore come boldly before his throne. To receive grace to help in time of need. Couldn't do that under the religious system of the old covenant of the law. And so there's this dispute. And uh, I think it was Karl Marx who said that religion is the opiate of the people. And he was right. Man is incurably religious. Man wants a system 
of constraints around him. And oftentimes, they won't just allow it to be a godly system, a godly directive. It'll just you know, tell me what I... Okay, I need to go to church. I need to uh, not do this, not do that. And then I'll feel okay. All right, I'll do that. And so travel the world and look at Hinduism with intricate rituals and worshiping millions of gods. Judaism, even still today, in some places, the way it's practiced. And so many different religions around the world that people practice and they feel smug because they have attended to the religious ceremony. Now, as we compare the difference between a religious system and Christianity, in verse 5, I'll draw your attention to a couple things, in verse 8, we see that religion majors on stuff that is outward, but God is more concerned about inward, the heart. In verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe. Now stop right there. My experience in reading the gospel is far from seeing a Pharisee who believed in Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus, but evidently at this time in the church there have been converted Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people who arose up out of the Babylonian captivity. And they decided when they were returning from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. Hey, if we're going to go back to the land, hey, we blew it once and we got sent into captivity for 70 years. We're not going to blow it again. We're going to be holy. And so they called, it the, they called themselves Padashim, the separated ones. Later on, they became known as Hasidim or the Hasidic Jews. They evolved into that. They derived their meaning from uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees guarded the law so much that they had all these rules and regulations. In fact, they took the law of Moses and made 613 rules and regulations. 248 of them were positive. 365 of them were negative. You shall not, you shall not. And that was their system. And then they even expanded on those and made commentaries on those. And they lived it within these legal constraints. So they said it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now compare that with verse 8. So God, who knows the heart. You see, that's the emphasis of Peter. He's comparing your system, which emphasizes and majors on the outward circumcision, versus God, who knows the heart. The Pharisees, the Jewish people at large during this time, placed an emphasis upon appearance. They were zealous for appearing righteous before men. And to them, the outward system equaled a righteousness with God. Remember Paul when he was writing about this in Romans. He says concerning the Jews, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They're zealous. They're on fire. But they don't know anything. They're just burning in one direction, but they have zeal without knowledge. And here these guys stand up and go, you know what? We love the law. And if you want to become a Christian, they want to become a Christian, you have to come through the law. Well, it sounded really great. But Peter says, God knows the heart. 
You're emphasizing the outward. God is emphasizing the heart. Remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was comparing the way to do righteousness. And he says, when you do your alms, don't do them like these guys in public to be seen by men. Otherwise, you'll have your reward. And when you pray, don't pray in the public square with your arms out and doing a little dance so people can see how spiritual you are. Because these people do it to be seen by men. But when you pray, go into your closet, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He made constant reference to the Pharisees who did things to be seen by men. This is the dangerous thing about a religion. Mankind loves people to pat them on the back for their spiritual duties. Oh, you're so spiritual. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, we want to give you an award and accolades and da-da-da-da. Oftentimes people seek for that kind of stuff. And many people won't serve unless they are recognized. And that's the dangerous thing about religion is that some people practice the outward form and equate that with inward righteousness. Hey, man, I go to church. Hey, I have a Bible. Hey, I do good things. Whenever I speak to a person about their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they will often say things to me like, well, I've been away from the church lately. I haven't gone to church. But they oftentimes don't address the issue of what about what's going on in the heart? Have you made repentance and restitution and reconciliation with God personally? Have you gone to him and say, God, I am sorry for my sins. I am turning my life over to you. I haven't been following you lately like I should, but do it to the Lord. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, came first before God and he said, before you and you only have I sinned and done this iniquity in your sight. It was a personal thing. It was something of the heart. It happens today. This emphasis on the outward. And there's a lot of Christians who wax religious, but their heart is far from the Lord. You know, we think, and we're, we're, we're sort of uh, the victim of misconception. Some people think that, well, if you're really a Christian, you should be happy all the time. All the time. So no matter what happens, even if you're bummed out and you see another Christian, smile. Just put it on. Even if you don't mean it, just smile and claim victory. I'm happy. I got victory. I got joy. Inside you're going, this stinks. God help. Somebody love me for who I am. But no, just put a smile on. And also we think that spiritual people talk spiritual, so we adopt a spiritual jargon. And every other word, even if we don't mean it, hallelujah, praise God, bless the Lord, blah, 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 just chatty cappy kind of stuff. Doesn't really mean anything. It's just gibberish. Couple might be having a fight in the morning before church. He's ready to slug her. She's ready to slam the door on his leg. But they come to church and see the usher and a smile comes out. Hey, you doing great. Hallelujah. Or people will carry a Bible with little regard as to living out its truth. They just carry it with them. They don't read it. They don't apply it. It's just sort of a prop. It's like, you know, this looks spiritual. So you walk around with one. It's good to keep cards in and letters in and appointments in, especially when you're around Christians, because it's outward. They'll think that I'm spiritual. 
I had a friend, in fact, he's, he's still a good friend, but he's, he's a funny guy. Uh, whenever he's going to do something, he buys all of the paraphernalia, even if he doesn't take lessons like when it comes to golf. Uh, he decides, I'm going to go out and buy the best golf equipment, the best golf hat, the best golf shirt, and I'm going to look like a golfer. So when I get out on the golf course, people will think, this guy looks like a good golfer. Now, the guy can't, you know. <laughs> but he's, he's, it's impressive to look at him. <laughs> Got the best ski equipment. We went out skiing one time, and I thought, yeah, the guy snow plows, you know, two miles an hour all the way down the mountain. He's got the best stuff, and going up on the chairlift, he looks good. <laughs> well, that's okay as far as that's concerned, but when it's in spiritual matters, not okay. Lip service without life service is futile. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's just lip service. One time, when I first moved to this town, I was doing a radio show, and a man called in, and uh, I think we had just had some kind of a Christian concert, probably our first one, and uh, it was it really turned out to be good, but we were talking about young people coming to know the Lord, and talking about the Jesus movement, the hippies that came to know the Lord when I was uh, younger in the Lord in California, and talking about that on the air, and this guy called up and just irate. Right. Talking about those people who look that way and follow the ways of the world with their long hair and they look like worldly people. And he finally said this. He goes, why don't these people start looking like Christians? And I, I, held, I almost just burst out cracking up. It was so funny. I finally asked him, I said, what exactly does a Christian look like? He couldn't give me a good answer. Because the minute you say, well, a Christian has to have black wingtip shoes instead of brown, uh, the narrow, ugly ties instead of the in-style ties, uh, kind of yellow church rather than, you know. I know worldly people that look like that. The emphasis is so often and too often on the outward rather than on the heart. And the Lord majors on the heart. Religion also sets up barriers and God breaks the barrier. Why it is that we want to set up walls and build up barriers when God's in the business of just knocking them down. In verse 5, again, I draw your attention. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe rose up. That word means rose up suddenly in anger. In other words, they were having a meeting and they just kind of shot up on their feet and they were ready to argue. Rose up suddenly. What were they accusing these people of? Of not living up to some regulation, some standard that they had set up. They were basically saying, hey, they don't do things our way, and thus they are not saved. When Jesus cured a man who was blind, and the Pharisees heard about it, they were all upset. Who cured you? I don't know, somebody named Jesus. And they finally got so upset, they accused the man, they said, I bet you were never blind in the first place. This just couldn't happen. They just wouldn't accept the fact that somebody had come in and torn down the barrier between pain and God and healed somebody. And they got all upset. There are people who think that they have 
the corner on the market as far as God's will is concerned. And if you don't do things the way we've always done them, live according to our little rules and regulations, they get all upset. Some people won't recognize you as being a Christian unless you've been baptized by their group. You can say, but I've already been baptized. I know, but you got to really be baptized. Well, how do I really be baptized? Well, i got to do it. If I do it, then you're really baptized. Or they say, if you're really a Christian woman, a Christian woman can never wear pantsuits. That's ungodly. That's worldly. You must only wear long skirts that are out of fashion, of course. And look a certain way. And that's holiness. And, and uh, it erects the barriers rather than bringing you closer to God or the music thing. But look at verse 8 again. God who knows the heart acknowledged them. Acknowledged them. That's an important word, acknowledged. It's a legal term. It's a witness in a courtroom who would stand up to come next to you and plead your case. The point is this. Religious systems and religious people like these Pharisees were rising up against these new Christians. God is rising up in their defense. He's cheering them on. They're saying, I don't know, you can't be saved. And God's standing up saying, you can. I'll be your attorney. I'll welcome you. That's the word he uses. Somebody who would stand up and bear witness on someone else's account. I love the story of the harlot who was committing adultery. And these religious folks carried this harlot in front of Jesus. And they said, this woman was caught in the very act. Of course, the logical question is, if she was, where's the man? Why just the woman? And so Jesus just kind of has his finger in the dirt. He's drawn. He's talking. To and they finally get a little more animate. And he says, tell you what. You who are without sin, here, here's a rock. Go ahead. Stoner. The law says stoner. Go, go for it. Get a good aim. But if you're without sin, you throw the first stone. They got convicted at that. They kind of walked away. Until Jesus was left standing face to face with this harlot who was obviously repentant. For Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Who's accusing you? They were. These religious people were saying, kill her. Where are your accusers? I don't have any. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, that's the difference between religious people who would say, well, unless you do this, 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 and this, you can't really be a Christian. Jesus is one who would stand up and say, come in. Lay down your sin. Go and sin no more. But I'm not going to condemn you or accuse you. He'll be the welcoming committee, the cheering committee. That's what that word means. This is at the right hand of God. And He ever lives to make intercession for us. Religion is great at setting up walls and barriers. The Jews in the temple had a wall. The wall said, if you're a Gentile and you go past this point, we'll kill you. They had robes, the Jewish men, the Pharisees, who when they walked, they didn't want to have a touch any Gentile because they would be unclean. They thought the Gentiles were created by God to kindle the fires of hell. There was a difference between Jew and Gentile, male and female. But the Bible says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition. He's broken down the wall. Look at verse 9. And he made no difference or no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
Christianity is the great bulldozer. As soon as religion sets up a wall, Christianity comes in and destroys it. That's what God's in the business of. So that people won't be separated and people won't feel, well, I'm more spiritual than you are and you're less spiritual than I am. And it's a shame that oftentimes Christians will migrate towards some Christian leader and divide themselves into camps and say, my camp is better than your camp. That's a tragedy. It's also a tragedy when you see clergymen do this who would puff themselves up as being on a higher spiritual level than you are. That's why I don't like titles like reverend. I don't like it. I get letters in the mail that say reverend. I just oh, God, forgive them, please. <laughs> they, don't, they know not what they do. <laughs> they really don't. There's only one time the Bible ever refers to a reverend, and that is to God the Father in the Old Testament. It's the only time the word is used. So I don't even like calling myself reverend because sometimes I'm irreverent. or doctor His holiness, or whatever. Anything that would separate me and someone else, is I don't like it. In the last chapter, when they started worshiping Paul and Barnabas, do you remember what their retort was? They said, don't worship us. We are men with the same nature as you are. We're not anything big or high and holy. We're just like you are, flesh and blood. Religion sets up barriers. God breaks them down. Religion will say, work your way to God. Work your way. Jesus will say, I am the way. Compare a few of these verses that we just read. Verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea, taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom. Not according to the Bible. According to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. And again in verse 9, Peter says, that he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. These Judaizers, or these Pharisees, these well-meaning, zealous people, were kind of saying... At first they were saying you can't be saved unless you keep the law. But it seems like in verse 5 they're saying you can be saved by grace but kept by the law. You have to work your way there. Faith isn't enough. Peter says faith is enough. Paul stands up and says faith is enough. James will stand up later on and say, hey, faith is enough. You're saved by God's grace through faith. That not of yourself. Hey, it's a gift of God. And they're going to all come to that consensus at the end of this chapter. It's by faith. Religion says, work your way. Jesus says, I am the way. Total difference. One of the problems that churches have been teaching, unfortunately, is to tell their people, hey, everybody act like a Christian. But they often tell that to people before telling people, you must first be a Christian. See, the church is often telling unbelievers, act like a Christian. Don't, don't act like a Christian. That's a hypocrite. Be one first. Come to Him by faith. Let Him change you. And then you will find that faith without works is dead. The Bible does say that. But you must have faith first. The root before you have the fruit. Don't go up to a tree and say, uh, bear fruit. If it's not planted, it's ridiculous. It has to have roots first. And so a person must be a Christian before he can start acting like one. 
It says in the book of Romans, but now the righteousness that is apart from the law is revealed, being justified freely by His grace. In the same chapter, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What have you done to deserve heaven? And if you're one to stand up and say, well, let me list all of my activities that let me into heaven, you have missed the boat. You know, if I ever tried to get into heaven on my merits, well, God, I passed her to church. So what? Because remember the story of the people who say, hey, we did many wonderful works in your name. We did this. We cast out demons in your name. Jesus said, I didn't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. A relationship based upon performance is always frustrating. Some of you have experienced that in relationships with spouses where you don't feel accepted because the sp- your other spouse is saying you're not performing a certain way and I love you as long as you perform this way. That's not unconditional love. What would it be if a husband said, Honey, I love you, but the next day he said, The eggs are runny. I don't love you anymore. You don't look the way I thought you should look this morning. I don't like that dress. I don't love you the same. That's a frustrating relationship when it's based upon performance rather than unconditional love. The recipient can never feel secure. The same way with God. It'd be scary to think that God loves me until He finds a flaw in me. Because He'll find a lot of them. And wouldn't it be horrible if all of a sudden God found a flaw in you and said, Oh, Hey, this changes things. I mean, you were saved before, but there's a flaw. I don't love you the same. That's conditional. Religious systems impose conditional love. You are saved as long as you do. The Bible says God's love was manifested in that while you were sinners, He died for the ungodly. And if He loved you while you were a sinner, when you were apart from Him, when you were ungodly, Will He love you any less? It says in Romans 8.32, Won't He with Him freely give us all things? Sure He will. And when a person really understands the grace of God, hey, a lot of people are scared of preaching the gospel of grace because they think, you just preach grace, that's easy believism. I mean, you know, you'll have a lot of people doing sinful things in the name. Hey, no, you won't. If a person really understands the unmerited favor of God, he'll be humbly on his face before God saying, Thank you, God. Thank you for saving me just the way I am. Now I want to bear fruit in my life for you. That will be the result of really acknowledging the grace of God. It will be a relationship based upon God's unconditional love. The questions that these Pharisees brought up, you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, was the very thing Paul condemned when he wrote the book of Galatians. And he said, though we, or an angel from heaven, come to you and preach any other gospel, but what we have given to you already, let him be cursed below the lowest hell. That's the literal Greek, anathema. And he said, I'll say it again. If somebody preaches a different gospel, we are an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. And Paul preached the gospel, faith plus nothing. You're saved by faith. God didn't say, well, you believe in me, you come to me, you turn your life over me. Yeah, but that's not enough. No, you come just as you are. And if you turn your life to Christ by faith, you will be saved. And then put your seatbelt on because he's going to change you. 
And for some people it's quicker, for some people it's slower. They get knocked around a little bit. The Holy Spirit has to kind of give them a good boot camp. But hey, He'll change you. If you come truly by grace through faith, and then it's true, faith without works is dead. Yes, you must cooperate with God. Yes, you must, as the Bible says, strive to enter into the uh, narrow gate or uh, to enter into His rest or cooperate with God, adding all diligence, all of those things. But they come as a result of salvation by faith. You're not saved because you do those things. You're not saved because you work. You work because you're saved. You do good works because you're saved, not vice versa. That's the true salvation that Paul, Jesus, and all the rest spoke about. And finally, religion imposes burdens. God lifts them. Look in verse 10. Now therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Another translation better says it. Why do you put on our necks a yoke that neither we nor our fathers had the strength to carry? A yoke was a device to control an animal. It was put over the neck of an animal. The animal was tied to the yoke. But if the yoke didn't fit, if it was too big, if it, so on and so forth, it wouldn't work. And the oxen couldn't pull the plow. And no work could be done. If it's too heavy, you wouldn't put a, you know, huge, huge yoke on a tiny little calf. Crush the thing. That's what Peter's saying. You're putting too big of a yoke. Paul referred to this in the book of Galatians. He said, stand fast in the liberty where whereby Christ has made you free. And don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage, this religious system that you try to feel smug in because you keep all of these little rituals. Stand fast in liberty. Celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, and by the way, it's in Matthew 23, it's a radical chapter. Several times he pronounces woes on these scribes, Pharisees, calls them hypocrites, the lawyers, teachers of the law. He says, don't do what they do, but do what they say. For they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with even one of their fingers. Jesus spoke about these characters in saying they strain at gnats, but they swallow camels. Which makes me believe Jesus had a great sense of humor. If you can imagine... oh. I'm kosher. There's a gnat. It's flying in my mouth. Oh, get it out. And then they swallow a camel, which is also unkosher. He's using hyperbole to say these guys are just filled with hypocrisy. They impose burdens. I've come to lift them. Do you remember when certain Pharisees came from Jerusalem to Galilee? Jesus was with His disciples and the Pharisees found out that Jesus didn't wash His hands properly. The disciples didn't wash their hands properly either before they had a meal. Now imagine coming some 60, 70, 80 miles to tell people you didn't wash your hands right. My mom wouldn't even do that. (laughs) These guys were a little upset. And they made a big case out of it. They said, we know that your disciples don't wash the proper Levitical way. Why do you transgress our traditions? And Jesus said, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? 
You impose burdens. I've come to lift burdens. Imagine if you were one of the students of a Pharisee. He was your teacher. And he told you what cleanliness and uncleanliness was and how you could get to God and you're walking around like this big religious burden. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And all of a sudden Jesus comes and one day you hear him in Galilee saying, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. He'd say, hey man, I want your burden. I want your yoke. I want to get rid of this thing. Jesus said, I have come to lift the burdens that man have put on. Now, don't get me wrong. There are clear-cut areas, clear-cut prohibitions in the Scripture that you just can't lightly throw away. For instance, the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The Bible forbids sexual immorality. We even see this in this chapter. There are several prohibitions that are black and white. You don't tamper with those. And you must admonish a person, hey, don't do those things. But then there are those gray areas. And when it comes to gray areas, that's where oftentimes people want to impose their little system. Okay, you want to join our church? You must sign this document that says you will not smoke a cigarette, you will not go to movies, you will not play cards. Hey, there are churches that do that. I would never have a person do that. You know why? I'm growing and you're growing. And when you were a baby Christian, you probably did a lot of stupid stuff too. And the Lord was faithful to convict you of it. And it's like a growing tree. You drop off a lot of those younger branches as you grow. Now, I know people who smoke cigarettes. I'm not going to go up saying, you know what? If you smoke, you want smoke down there. That's where all the smoke is. No, I won't do that. I'm not going to play Holy Spirit in their lives because the Bible says thou shalt not smoke. Oh, but your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe you eat certain kinds of foods like Taco Bell or McDonald's. Maybe you're destroying your temple with that stuff. <laughs> See, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Now, I don't like smoking. I think it's a filthy, stinky habit. It's just, it's stinky. It's a... Ugh. Put me on an airplane next to somebody smoking, I'll probably get nauseated. I'm not going to impose my little standard upon them, though. When the Holy Spirit's ready to do it, great. If they ask me about it, I'll share, hey, man, let's pray. Let's work on that. Let's try to get rid of that. And there's times for strict obedience, but then there are those gray areas. There's those weaker brothers that we need to uplift and encourage rather than just condemn. Instead of pointing your finger at them, how about put your arms out and say, Hey man, let me be your friend. I'll help you. Let's get through this thing. Be convicted by the Lord that this is wrong. Be determined that you're going to lay this aside as sin. And let me help you now draw closer to the Lord. That's the way that Jesus would do it. Take my yoke upon me, on you and learn of me. You will find rest to your souls. Some of you have been through all the religious systems and you're tired. You're just beat up. You've tried to keep all those little rules and regulations and try to read my ten scriptures a day and memorize two of them and go to church this many times a week and do these little rituals. And Jesus wants you to come to Him. He wants to set you free with a liberty and lift the burden. Now, we have a few minutes to go through the decision that happened. 
They had their counsel. James stands up, the brother of Jesus Christ, the flesh brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James. And he was a good one to stand up, by the way, because he had leanings toward the law. He mentions the law about nine times in his little epistle. And so he was a perfect spokesman to stand up. The Pharisees would respect him, besides being probably the head of the early church in Jerusalem. He says in verse, uh, he quotes Amos in verse 18, Known to God from eternity are all of His works. Which, by the way, should put to rest this idea of the limited knowledge of God that some groups teach that God only knows what is knowable and He is learning as He goes along. God knows it all from the beginning. Verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, this is a different one, not Iscariot, he's obviously dead, who was also named Barnabas, Oh, excuse me, Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter. The apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles and Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore also sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood from things strangled and from sexual immorality. For if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And they say, farewell. They were told to abstain from sexual immorality. That was very prevalent among the Gentiles. It got to be where everybody was doing it. And these young Gentiles thought, hey, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I've always done this. So they say, hey, you don't do that. You stay away from sexual immorality. And the Bible has always spoken about sexual immorality and has always condemned it. But then there are also these concessions. Don't eat anything that's strangled. Don't eat blood. Why? Because there are Jewish brothers. It says Moses has been preaching all of the synagogues for a long time. And if you go into a temple and they sacrifice an animal to an idol and then they sell the meat in the meat market, and a lot of Christians bought the meat and ate it because it would probably be a little cheaper. But for Jewish brethren, it would offend them to see you eating a Big Mac that was previously offered to an idol. They think, hey, you have not broken with your idolatry yet. It was a real hang-up for these legalists still. And, hey, you don't have to keep all the kosher laws, but stay away from drinking blood or eating anything strangled. That's going to offend your Jewish brothers. And if you do these things, you do well. That was all they imposed upon them. They were saying, in other words, be sensitive to other brothers who see things as really difficult and as sinful. 
And Paul spoke, speak about, uh, speaks about that in Romans 14 and 15 about weaker brothers. Some you can't eat meat with. Some you can only eat vegetables with and how to handle them. And so he's saying, listen, you've accepted Christ. Just be sensitive to these Jewish brethren. Stay away from something that is blatantly wrong, sexual immorality. If you do these things, you do well. He didn't say, okay, in order to be saved, sign this document that says you won't play cards, you won't go to movies. You have to be baptized within one week period of time. He just said, hey, you do these things, you do well, farewell. And so they were sent off and they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles However, it seemed good for Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So, there was a compromise of love. And both groups had to compromise. The Jewish legalists had to finally compromise and say, all right, all right. They don't have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. They just have to come by faith and they'll be accepted. But these new Christians had to make a compromise of love as well. They had to have a dose of sensitivity to not offend their Jewish brothers. So both of them need a dose of love. That's important. Whenever there is a dispute, be determined to work through the dispute and settle it in love. There are some people, however, who insist on their way. And they go on a little campaign. And they just won't drop the thing. They just, they insist on their own way and they come against a person or a group and they just, they go on a campaign. They just insist on their own little way of doing things. And they're the hardest people to work with. Hardest people to live with. But it's this concession of love. Keep these things, you do well. And finally he says, God bless you. What a beautiful way in grace to solve a problem. You know, it would be easy for Paul and Barnabas to say, you know what? I don't want to have fellowship with you Jewish people anymore. Just go away. And these legalists, being Pharisees, it would be easy for them to say that, but they wouldn't do it. They sat down. They discussed it with other people. They got the counsel. And they reconciled. And they both added a dose of love to their theology. They didn't compromise on the Word. In fact, they honed down the real meaning of it. And they stayed true to the Scripture without compromising any scriptural principle. Only their feelings and their interpretation towards certain things. And if you do these things, you do well. And I love that way of settling a problem. You don't lay a big yoke on people, a big trip. We, for some reason, think we can do a better job of discipling people than God can. We want to usurp His authority and power and grab a hold of a person's life and lord over them instead of gently teaching them, walking with them for a period of time and then say, you know what, brother? Now stand up on your own two feet. You're God. You belong to God. That's important. That graduation of you belong to the Lord. The Lord is your shepherd. I'm sure it was hard for James to write that letter. James probably thought, you know, faith without works is dead. How do I know that these Gentile believers in Antioch are really going to follow this and walk and I need to get there and, hey, don't offend your Jewish brothers. Stay away from fornication. Do these things. You do well. God bless you. Take it to them. Then others went there to encourage them in the Lord. Beautiful. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that we would never settle for a system that doesn't exalt Christ and His grace and the true work of faith in a person's heart. The true work of faith. The transformation that can take place when you invade a person's life. Lord, I pray that we learn to trust in Your power to take care of people. I pray, Father, also for those who might be here in this auditorium who a religious system describes their life. They've tried to establish their own righteousness but have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They have been very zealous, but it's been a zeal not according to knowledge. They've emphasized the outward. They've kept a system, but they don't have peace in their hearts. They don't know that their sins are forgiven. I pray, Lord, that You would speak to their hearts, that they should come unto You, that they would find rest for their souls instead of turbulence and turmoil that they're experiencing tonight. Extend Your arm of love and grace. 